episode. Anyone new list? I just realised anyone new listening from Maximum Fun doesn't know I'm a doctor yet. Oh yeah, <laughs> got to shut that out. I have a PhD. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that into the start. Yeah. Have it. We'll just periodically <laughs> insert it throughout. Oh, sorry. I didn't see you there. I was just admiring my doctor. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn about anything and everything interesting. Whoa, yes! (laughs) This episode, we will be covering a main science topic, answering a sciencey question, and then covering a miscellaneous topic too. My name is Caroline, and this episode, we're going to be talking about the past, the present, and the future of plastics. Whoa! Yeah. Micro or macro? We're going to be mostly focusing on the macro, but we'll chat a little bit about the microplastics as well. I'm very excited to to visit the ghost of plastic past. Right. Because I I feel like we we live in a a world where it's... It just is. Okay, sorry. I don't want to jump into it right away. We'll we'll, we'll talk all about it. Yeah. Uh, My name's Tom, and today's question is, do any of our hosts have perfect pitch (laughs) oh i hope we get to test it properly (laughs) oh no i'm already embarrassed Uh, we're we're going to see why it's actually more complicated than yes or no um and then i'm also going to be asking do any other animals have perfect pitch Mm -hmm. that's really interesting and i want i'm gonna say this now tom if this is just an excuse to show us how you have perfect pitch <laughs> I will not be so participating in this topic. Oh no. <laughs> well, um, I guess we'll just find out <laughs> later. <laughs> oh, that made me feel so much better. Oh good. Okay. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Uh, my name's Ella and today's miscellaneous topic is generations. Ooh, ooh, okay. What? Interesting. <gasps> oh, as in like oh. Gen X, Gen Z, Millennial, exactly. Boomers. Yeah, nice. Oh, Ella, I remember you, this being like a thing that you were interested in like a while ago. Yeah. So I'm so excited to get the chance to like deep dive into this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So oh, exciting. Yeah boy. Yeah boy. And, and as we always say, yeah boy. Yeah boy. Can either of you give me a definition of what a plastic actually is? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, man. A, uh, I, O, (laughs) U. No, no idea. Amazing start. I, that is a great question. Is it, I'm wondering, is it like a specific compound or is it a broader category polymer chains oh oh polymer of uh what's what's plastic made of jesus uh <laughs> i have what is plastic made of <laughs> that's the question Ella, you're you've actually answered the question already wow yeah so i'm gonna go with what the science museum uses as a definition which is two different things is it like petroleum and oil based i could be wrong about that so i think you're both thinking very very specific and actually like general definitions of plastics are quite 
broad because mm-hmm, plastics mm-hmm, are made mm-hmm. out of a lot of different chemicals. But that word polymer is very important for modern day plastics. Mm. Plastics come from the plastic tree they that do. is harvested in North America. <laughs> and, and it's important to plant your plastic trees for the future. Uh, please, don't do that, actually. Please do not hey guys, actually, bury don't do plastic that. bottles into the ground. <laughs> Pla- plastics are it. an invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> so... The Science Museum has a very, very general definition, which is just that it's a loose term for describing materials that can be formed and moulded under heat and pressure. Oh. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I thought that was really interesting that it doesn't actually involve a chemical class whatsoever. Most modern day plastics, though, are made out of a thing called polymers which is just Mm, small mm. chains of the same chemical like after each other repeated to create much longer chains. That's all that that means. Okay, that's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because I'm thinking of the word like plasticity, like brain plasticity, like it is the the formability of it that defines it. That's interesting. I I, I literally had never considered that. Oh yeah, Tom, that's such a good point. Like that plastic is like used as a term, it's like used as a... Like an adjective, yeah, yeah. yeah. To be plastic is to be full of polymers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> microplastics in my brain that's good more plasticity <laughs> um, but what i'm gonna do is talk about some precursors to plastics which Ooh. sort of fulfill the same role of being something that can be molded under heat and pressure and things like that like i said at the start i am so curious how we got to here how we got because i feel point. like yeah you know it, it almost feels dumb to say that like Plastics are everywhere, and apparently we don't even know what they are. <laughs> um, so, uh, but but very clear. But it feels at the same time very modern and yeah. entrenched at the same time. So, it's so I, yeah, I'm so interesting, curious, isn't it? Because like we see plastics literally all around us all of the time. So to think of a world where that didn't exist, it feels very very far away. Mm-hmm. When actually, like most of this stuff is very very modern. So it's, it's going to be really mm-hmm. fun to talk about it a little bit. Woo. But where this story starts is actually in places like horn and tortoiseshell and amber and natural rubbers. Which yeah, I, was, all... I was literally oh, oh goddamn! I was yes. about to say. So <laughs> I, I know this. Gotta buzz in faster. I know. I really do. I need. So I know this from a another podcast called Behind the Bastards, talking about the the Dutch overtaking the Congo because they that's they collected rubber from yeah. uh, rubber trees or rubber mm-hmm. plants. Oh. And I was like, oh, so I didn't realize, but like that's like a pretty that's plastic, right? Rubber's plastic, and they can Whoa. essentially, yeah, yeah, uh huh. Uh, I uh, feel like we've I, just blown Tom's brain a little bit with that. I, bit like, of I want like w- when it's just that combined with the the fact that we're defining a plastic as like a moldable substrate, mm-hmm. like fully turned a switch in my brain where I'm like, oh, I I can kind of I I can start to see where this how this story yeah. happens yeah, in yeah, the yeah. geopolitical context of like materials that are formable as a resource. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Okay. So, <laughs> in terms of things like horn and tortoise shell and things like that that come from these sort of natural like animal horns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you see a potential issue with 
using those things that we used to use. Uh, you need animals. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's you need those animals. <laughs> only so many horns, only so many turtles only in the world. so many turtles in the world. There are only so many elephants and things like that. Um, and we've seen the impact that overhunting has caused mm, for trying to mm. acquire these products. As it stands, I think it's something like half of all turtle species are threatened with extinction still. Wow. Um, wow. And overhunting is one of the causes of that. And of course, there are loads of really famous examples about elephants being hunted for their ivory, <laughs> rhinos for their horns, all of this sort of stuff. So by the mid to late 1800s, these sort of I'm going to refer to them as natural plastics, mm -hmm. if we use that really loose term. They're becoming cool. a lot more scarce, and they're only really accessible to quite wealthy people at this point. Mm. But the demand for these products is obviously still increasing, so some right. sort of alternative is needed. And that is where really early plastics emerge from. It also kind of emerged from the need for explosive materials, because the th first things we used to use are called <laughs> nitrocellulose. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not surprised that I feel like so often uh, explosions are at the root of a lot of science and yeah. innovation. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So nitrocellulose is a very, very early form of plastic. It's not completely synthetic, but a precursor to that used to be something called gun cotton which we used to cotton. soak cotton into this chemical substance. And as it dried, it would ignite and become no very, way. very flammable. Yeah. How, um, how, did, how do I get plastic water bottles from this? <laughs> <laughs> if you gave me gunpowder and, and cotton, I don't know how I would get you a Dasani you water to, bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the idea of nitrocellulose is that it's cotton fibers dissolved in nitric and sulfuric acid and then mixed with vegetable oil. So it wasn't quite so flammable, but it was still okay. quite a flammable substance. Okay. But that like soaked cotton is like a malleable material? It's is a malleable material that hardens up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And but then has the unintended side effect of also being quite explosive. And that's that's a theme that we're going to see quite a lot of in this story. So. <laughs> Oops, we made it explosive. <laughs> Whoopsies, not again. Um yeah, so in 1855 in Birmingham in the UK, a man named Alexander Parks discovered that Essentially, nitrocellulose could be used to create hard materials in bulk rather than in these mm, like small batches mm. that they probably would have been made in before this point. And he mm -hmm. patented this creation as Parkesine in 1862. Okay. Never heard of this. No. So there are going to be a few things that you've possibly not heard of before. Um, <laughs> but these are the very, very early forms of plastic. This was a very, very highly flammable material. But he suggested that it could be used for everything from the plastic coats around pens to raincoats and things wow. like that. What year is this again? Sorry. So this is 1862 that this was patented in and it was discovered okay. in around 1855. So possibly a bit earlier than you think it might be as well. It's yeah. definitely earlier than I thought. Yeah, yeah. So he presented this invention at the Crystal Palace exhibition in London. Woo! And actually received a really big loan at the time of around £10,000 to establish the Parkesine Company wait, 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 in wait, wait, 1866. Wait. This is one of my favourite things do to do. Okay, so... Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Purchasing power. This is from 2018. 
That's £600,000. Holy That's piss. a lot of money. Wow. So that was in 1866. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, this, I just want to say this, this calculator also says in 1860 you could buy 666 horses with £10,000. That's a lot of horses. Yeah, I'll, I'll give them that. <laughs> that, uh-huh. that somehow made it, like, made me lose all connection to it. I'm like, I don't know what money is, actually. <laughs> actually, hold on. <laughs> also, you could, well, it would pay 50,000 days of wages for a skilled tradesman. Wow. Okay, that that's that makes more sense than 666 horses. <laughs> and, and would you like to know the silly thing about this? Yes. Oh, yes. Always. Not even a decade later, in 1874... His company went bankrupt and it had to close oh, down. Oh, sad. Well, wow. should have invested in those horses instead. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's where he went wrong. He's like, how many horses? How many horses Whoa! <laughs> the devil's number? God, I gotta do it. No, that's why he didn't. Yeah. That's what, oh. Goofed up there. That's the greatest trick the devil ever made. Okay. <laughs> um, that's very funny because I feel like we were on this up and up trajectory yeah, uh-huh, in absolutely. this story. Um, but huh. obviously this isn't the end of this chemical itself. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of drama following the patent for this chemical, the years following Amazing. the closure of this company, of course. I love patent drama. My favourite kind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into too much detail with it, but basically a man named John Wesley Hyatt acquired Parks's patent, improved upon the process and created something called celluloid which will be a relevant chemical in a second. That I have heard You've of. heard of that one? Yeah. There was also an old buddy turned enemy of Alexander <gasps> Parks called Daniel Spill, who was trying to claim the patent as his own. But after a bunch of back and forth in legal proceedings, the judge ruled that both parties could continue producing this new chemical. Mm. So, Tom, you said you've heard of celluloid before. Can you... I... Oh, have you both heard of it before? I have. Oh, but Ella's buzzed in. I know. I think I know one specific thing yeah. it's used for. And I think I know this because I wondered it when someone cut one open once and it looked really weird inside. I think celluloid Whoa. is used for making tennis balls. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It still is. Yeah. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> or it was up until very, very recently, at least. Yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah I think I... What? It was what uh-huh. I was going... I went down a rabbit hole of what are basketballs made of when I saw a video <laughs> of someone painting the black lines onto basketballs. <laughs> I was... Could not in a million years expect Ella to slumdog millionaire this question. <laughs> <laughs> like, actually, it's tennis balls. Because one time I wanted to... I, I have nothing to say. That's... Yeah. So that's actually not the example that I was going to go with. The thing I was actually going to talk about is for film manufacturing between the 1800s and early to mid-1900s. No way. Was not expecting this crossover into the innovation of film. (laughs) Into the film world. So it was literally used to create the film that was used to, like, put on the reel. Oh, celluloid, doy, I'm so... Yeah, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Wow. So, obviously, you've heard of celluloid in film. Do you know what the problem was with celluloid in film? 
Oh, okay. <laughs> when they said... put it in the uh, the, I know this. I know this from watching movies. Yeah. When you put it in the projector, it kept on setting on fire. <laughs> it did keep setting on fire. Yeah, because turns out when you move stuff very fast, like twenty four times a second, uh -huh. in front of a hot light. Uh -huh. How many films are there with like you see the real like burn up at the end? Always happens. Oh, so how many, many. horror movies yeah. where the the uh, the film yeah, gets yeah. set on fire? It's such a cliche at this point, but it is like based completely in reality that this stuff actually ended up taking a lot of people's lives because it would regularly oh, cause man. fires in cinemas. Wow! And actually, one really sad example that I found was in 1929. This stuff was still being used, and it was actually used for X-rays. Like the film in X-ray machines. Oh, right. And the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio had tons of this stuff in storage, stored in a safe place, also they thought. And then a heating pipe broke and ignited <laughs> the entire store of it. But celluloid has oxygen within its like chemical composition, meaning uh -huh, that uh -huh. even if you fully submerge it in oh, water, no. it's going to keep burning, basically. <gasps> Oh, God. Wow. So they couldn't put this fire out, and over 120 people passed away in this hospital oh, fire. Jesus basically. Christ. It's, it's really... I don't think I've ever considered how literally people at the time were playing with things that like a hundred years ago were basically not even a hundred years ago were basically explosives yeah. mm. uh -huh. and then we're like let's put let's use this for a lot of things let's use That's this for a lot so... of stuff yeah yeah it's it's funny because you know at, at the start we i joked about like plastics is used for everything and now i'm amazed to hear that plastics was used for everything uh -huh. but like uh -huh. it really right. is <laughs> Wow. So we're going to move on from celluloid because obviously it did have a lot of issues. So people were still trying to look for something else. And this is where something called Bakelite became used. I've heard this. Don't yeah. know that one. Have you not heard of this one either? So mm -mm. I had heard of this one before because I used to work at an antiques auction. Mm. So you'd get Bakelite objects oh, coming through quite yeah. a lot of the time. Because this is pretty much plastic at this point. This stuff still exists to this day. It takes a very long time to break down. And this was mm -hmm. first created in 1905. And this is also the first fully synthetic polymer plastic. So oh, wow. essentially the first proper plastic that we've got at mm. this point. As we think of it today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like that polymer wow. thing, all of that stuff. I'm sorry, I just Googled this, Caroline. And yeah. I have a challenge for you. Ooh, okay. Jesus. I want you to try and pronounce the actual chemical compound name of Bakelite. I oh, have it written God. down in my script and I just skipped over it because I was like, I'm too scared of this. <laughs> please, please give try. It a solid go, though. I'm going to do it in like the individual bits and then maybe I'll try and do it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. so, so I believe in you. Just run through it. it. <laughs> so it's polyoxybenzylmethyl N-glycolanhydride. So uh, I think you were really close. I think it's poly. Really close. <laughs> I think it's polyoxybenzymethyl N-glycolanhydride. Hydride. That end bit is so hard, isn't it? <laughs> Wait, can I try? Can I, Polyoxybenzylmethyl N-glycolanhydride. This, this is Bakelite, right? Yeah. Hold yeah. on. Bakelite. B-A-K-E-L-I-T-E. Bakelite. Okay, Bakelite. Yeah. Um, Worcestershire. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it, Tom. Well done. Is that right? Cool. Cool, cool. 
I feel like there's it's always like Bakelite jewellery, they say. Mm. It is. Mm. There's a lot of Bakelite jewellery. It was also used in like those very classic black like phone cases that you would see. Oh. And like radios, all sorts of stuff. It was initially created by soaking like wow. soaking wood yeah. and asbestos in this oh, resin good, to great. create. So what are you saying of people wearing asbestos jewellery? They removed the <laughs> asbestos and wood elements by the time it was being worn as jewellery, but very early examples. So things like those phone cases and radios and stuff like that were potentially created with asbestos. That's so bad. But it was also then created like into these translucent pieces that you see in like, a lot of images of Bakelite. It's like in colours like reds mm-hmm. and yellows, really bright, fantastic colours. And it was used in everything from jewellery to casino chips, basically. Mm. This was also a very cheap product, meaning that for the first time potentially mm. ever, this stuff was available to people other than the super mm. wealthy or for like government use in military projects. So that was really, really cool. That was really exciting. And actually a boom sort of began in the 1900s for all of these different types of plastics to be produced it's funny because it's like finally the thing that like a hundred years earlier people were like wouldn't it be great if we had infinite or or we could Uh make tortoise shell wouldn't it be so cool if we could make combs rather than having to carve them out of pieces of shell and stuff like that yeah and it's really interesting at this time that like chemical and petroleum companies were starting to work with chemical suppliers to see if they could find Mm. a use for a lot of their waste material from the processing of things like crude oil and natural gases. I'm telling myself that this is because the companies weren't wanting to pollute the environment and things like that. <laughs> In reality, it was definitely to make money from those waste to materials. Make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Of course it was. But a really, really common waste product is something called ethylene gas or ethylene mm-hmm. gas, which makes polyethylene, which is actually the polymer that makes most plastics today still okay so this when was, was found discovered back it was discovered by accident in 1933 all the best things are oh yes <laughs> um it was a failed reaction and it produced this white waxy substance in one of the tubes they were using for this reaction and that was the polymer of ethylene basically Hmm. this actually was used in secret during world war ii which i think is really really interesting they didn't make this available for commercial use straight away because it was being used for things like insulating cables in radar equipment and in planes and this sort of stuff and to litter on enemy shores (laughs) (laughs) perfect (laughs) yeah so it wasn't available for public use for a really long time and when it was it was used for creating things like hip replacement joints and stuff like that. So it was used oh, in the medical wow. field quite a lot too. All wow. the way back in 1965, the carrier bag was invented using plastic. Boo! Boo. The what? <laughs> the plastic carrier bag. Oh, is that not what they're is called this a in the US? What are they called oh in the God. US? Oh my God! Water bottle? A shopping water bag? Bottle? A shopping uh, bag? Oh, shopping. Yeah, shopping bag. Grocery Carri- bag, yeah. A grocery carrier bag? Hold on. Let's get, let's take a quick aside. Say what? Say your word again. Carrier plastic bag. Plastic carrier bag. I think we just say plastic bag. Like Katy Perry famously said, do you ever feel like a plastic bag? Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Wow. We just have the, we just make it unnecessarily long like all of, of our words. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah. Why not, right? <laughs> Doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that was in 1965. 
we started seeing plastic bottles in the 1970s that was created using something called PET, which we also still use today. That's polyethylene terephthalate. Wow. There you go. Nailed that one. Yeah. You're doing so well. <laughs> Thank you Can so I much. Can I say, it, it's, it's so fascinating to see as this gains traction, what is prioritized it getting used for initially yeah. and then mm -hmm. what it becomes. Yeah. Like, I mean, it totally makes sense that, you know, you have this evolution of like military use to then like mm. specific medical use. Yeah. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even, even to like jewelry makes sense in a way. Yeah. And then to, I mean, I'm sure going to keep going, but to me, plastic bag feels like it, you're crossing the Rubicon in some way. Like that is, that is a, 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 a level. Yeah. As soon as you start making something like a bag that can be made from anything and more sustainably out of this kind of yeah. material, it's like, you, yeah. it's like a no return. Yeah. 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 You've gone past that yeah. point now. And honestly, that is the sort of point where the history of plastic ends because that's mm. sort of where we are now, <laughs> isn't here we it? Are. Yeah, here we are. We're using it to make literally everything from useful things like cable insulation and in medical scenarios and stuff like that to what we might see as less useful situations like carrier bags and things like that. And of course, so like the perk of plastics is that it's this very, very strong, very, very stable group of chemicals. And that's also its downfall the for curse. us, is yeah. that it's so strong and so stable that it takes a really, really long time to break down in the environment. And that's yeah. how we get to where we are now. One point that I do want to highlight is 1997, when sailor and researcher Charles Moore discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Do you, either of you two know what that is? Ah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. I, I don't. And people say everything on Earth has been discovered already. Well, <laughs> lies. No, 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 no. Listeners, maybe one day you'll discover a, a garbage continent. <laughs> so essentially oh. what this gar these garbage patches are, there are five of them that we're aware of so far. And it's oh very, very God. calm. Oh, right? Yeah. Are you not familiar with this, Ella? No. So this is an area in the ocean where um, it's much, much calmer. And actually a lot of currents seem to sort of merge here, pushing mm, a lot of plastic mm. into one place. Got and it. it has just meant that plastic waste has accumulated over many, many years. As it stands right now, this garbage patch measures at 1.6 million square kilometers. Jesus Christ! And it is twice the size of Texas, oh or three times God. the size of France. Way! Yeah. That's fucking, that's insane. And that's just one of five that we're aware of right now. Could you, can you imagine? Can, uh -huh. you, can you imagine discovering that? Just and like, it, he was oh, literally- hey, there's some, hey, huh. Oh, 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 no. oh dear. He literally only discovered it because he just happened to want to wow. sail through this region of the ocean. And there it was. Oh, man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we understand how awful the impact is of plastics like this. We'll do a very quick pop quiz in a second. Actually, no, we'll start it now. Yay. How many plastic bags do you think are currently being used every second? Good lord. Uh, About thousands, 10,000. It's 160,000 plastic bags a second. Oh, you said a second. I was like, yeah. just like today. 
Not like, oh, oh that's, no, that's, oh, that's, no. So that's a second. Oh, boy. What are, what are people using all these plastic bags for? Well, so that, that comes on to my next question quite nicely, which is, on average, how long do you think a plastic shopping bag is used for? See, that's, that's the... That's the most frustrating on thing average, about two days. You think it's two days in total? I, I mean, a day, like half a day, like an hour, twelve minutes. Oh, God, what? Damn. What are you? How is that even possible? You get the bag and then you just like sling it in the I mean, street. Yeah. Well, see that. That's what's so extra frustrating. Hearing the history of it is because it's yeah. like we want to develop this compound that is resistant and moldable to a custom shape. And then once it became cheap, it was like, hey, what if we use that for like a what, thing what can that we, we use next? Ooh. When do you think, so which country do you think was the first to ban plastic bag use in some capacity? Uh, and what year do you think that was in? I know the UK did it like maybe 10 years ago or, or within the mm -hmm. last 10 years. Yeah, so I have to assume that, that was a more remember. progressive country. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of thinking about it from a sustainability, protecting the environment kind of way, what other issues do you think plastic bags might cause because they don't disintegrate? I was thinking like India or Malaysia, maybe like a rainy You're country. Much or like where there are rain so seasons. It was Bangladesh. Oh. And it was in 2002. I don't know if anybody, any of our listeners remember this. In 2002, wow, 2002, they had really, really bad flooding in the country. And a lot of that was attributed to plastic bags clogging up the drainage system. That yeah. is so interesting. Crazy. That's so, so it wasn't wow. particularly to do with not wanting plastics in the environment. It was very much because they kind of had to. Otherwise, it was going to cause real issues for the infrastructure in that country. Final two questions. What percentage of plastics do you think are recycled per year? Uh, two, oh, two. God, 10% maybe? It is 9%. Oh, well, that, okay, well, yeah. I'm glad my pessimism paid off here. <laughs> <laughs> and finally... Hey, guys, still not enough, though. Yeah, <laughs> still, like, still like, not good. We're, we're pessimistically optimistic with, yeah. with 9%. Yeah. Final question is, how long does it take for plastics to fully decompose? Holy moly. A hundred, oh. 300 years. Oh, mm, I'm going to say closer to like a 1,000. It is about a thousand years. Yeah. Shit. Fuck yeah. me. So in theory, the majority of plastics that have ever been created still exist in some capacity on this planet. That is chilling, Caroline. Right? There you go. That Enjoy that fact for you. So <laughs> chilling. I don't um, I don't ooh. enjoy that fact, actually. Thank you. No, no, it's not a good one. Um and of course, we know that plastics are causing a lot of harm for wildlife by being ingested by various animals. We're going to briefly talk about microplastics, which are plastics that are less than five millimetres long. So they've started this um, decomposition process into smaller pieces of plastic, which now oh, is exist. is that where micro... Oh, everywhere. Yeah, okay. so that's where microplastics come mm. from. And they are found everywhere from potentially in our blood, in our food... And they've even made their way into the fossil record as well. No fucking way. So yeah, no, we found microplastics in sediment samples dating all the way back to 1945. So we've definitely made our mark in that way. 
I'm not going to dwell too much on the negatives of plastics because we all know this already. And I'm glad that it is the status quo. I'm, yeah. I, I'm glad that at least that and, you know, looking to the future, I'm very curious what you have to say. But at the very least, I'm glad that the public opinion, while yeah. pessimistic, is at least getting closer to realistic. Yeah, definitely. So th this is going to be the final sort of place that we leave this on today is... What can we do? What are we doing about plastics? So I want to ask, what are the current solutions that you guys are aware of? I, I guess I assume I mean, there's a lot of yeah. reuse happening. Uh, yeah, like absolutely. recycling the plastic for re reusing things. I'm sure, I'm sure I've used many products which have been like, yeah, been like, oh, we're 100 percent recycled plastic or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. how true that is or how like good that is, but like for the most part, recycling is good and is essential for plastic use in the future. Um, and it's becoming even more important given this also equally terrifying fact, which is that a lot of countries actually sort of dump their plastic waste in less developed countries. Hey, we do that. We do do that. England <laughs> does that and America does that. And you know um, what? And you know who did it in recent years that made the news? Canada. They were sending like all of their plastic waste, I think, to Malaysia. Or maybe we it was the Philippines. We were also sending our plastic waste to Malaysia, were, yeah. Um, it might have been Arzan Canada. And Malaysia was just like, no, no, we're not having yeah. it anymore. And they sent it back. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a re I think that was back in 2018. The UK and Europe were found to be doing that, where they were illegally dumping their stuff in just huge metal containers to Malaysia, to the point where Malaysia was refusing to accept these containers anymore. So that's a pretty messed up one. Another one is Kenya, which was where America used to dump a lot of their plastics. And actually, Kenya was one of the 180 countries that signed something called the Basel Convention Plastic Waste Amendment, which mm. it did a lot of things to help like curb plastic waste in these countries, but it also put a complete ban on the US for sending their plastic waste over to these countries. So I think that's really, really cool. But it does mean yeah. that countries like the UK, the US, a lot of Europe do have to get a lot better at recycling. And as mm. it stands, we're not very good at it. Can you guys think about why we possibly don't do more recycling in our own countries? It's pretty expensive to establish these recycling plants. Um, and it is much cheaper to palm it off to different countries and sort of be and like, is, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. This is, this is just a this issue specifically is a personal pet peeve i have with economics where like yeah you know people say that like the cost of a thing will eventually will perfectly represent its value and its cost yeah like and so clearly the cost of a plastic is not its true cost because yeah. it's yeah. just yeah. it's just something that's so far down the line the cost accrues that you, we don't account it and so fucking plastic water bottles should not cost should not be that cheap mm -hmm. it's just such mm -hmm. a sorry mm. one thing i will briefly touch on is the idea of biodegradable plastics which seem to be one of these things which everybody talks about and then they're not actually very good when we get to using mm. them obviously we're getting better at it and in time that will become a thing but it's not quite where we want it to be right now i will also say i i think i can almost say certainly that all three of us agree that this problem is not one of individual responsibility oh this gosh is... no, oh, no, no, yeah. no 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 yeah. <laughs> like, i don't want to uh -huh, jump the gun uh -huh. to like whatever end you have but like it's not 
your fault for being in this situation where you have Uh to choose between a plastic water bottle, a biodegradable water bottle, and a canvas water bottle. It's like, it's... it's, (laughs) Sorry, you just said a canvas water bottle. I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, No, I disagree, Tom. You, the listener, is your individual responsibility (laughs) uh, to stop climate change. It's your fault. (laughs) It's in your hands and your hands alone. No one else is going to do it. Why did you, the listener, pass legislation allowing this to (laughs) Why did you, the listener, mass produce plastic? (laughs) (laughs) Just shut down your personal factory. It's that easy. Oh boy. So yeah, I, I feel like everybody might be feeling a little bit defeated about the whole thing. Mm. We're, we're making these jokes very much in jest, but I think it's a little bit like, oh, what do we do then? There are several humongous problems going on in the world right now. So is it even something that we particularly care about right now? And I want to come back to the idea that plastics actually are really, really useful for a lot of people. It's obviously really hygienic to use, so it could potentially make things like food Mm. transportation much more accessible. It's also really, really great in the medical field for things like transporting vaccines and medical equipment and all sorts of stuff. Plastic is pretty much essential for that sort of stuff now. Mm. Um, It can be really, really important for some disabled people who use those as tools which are essential for their quality of life. Because plastic packaging is lighter it can actually mean that transporting it takes up less fuel than mm. transporting alternatives. All of these sorts of things okay. mean that plastics are really, really beneficial to us. And in my opinion, I don't think plastics are this entirely like black and white stance about whether they're good or not. Yeah. It's also really interesting that plastics are relevant to progress in at least six of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's everything from helping to secure food, growth and lifetime, enhancing mm. health and being critical in the delivery of affordable and clean energy. So it's so hard to be like, plastics yeah. are bad and then hear all of that and be like, like we, we can't just get rid of it all. Mm. And I think I'll leave you on a quote from the University of Birmingham's page. They say that clearly our continued unsustainable use of plastic products cannot continue. It is reasonable to say that plastic should actually be part of maintaining a healthy environment. However, mm. what we use and the way in which we use them must be changed to encourage responsible production and consumption. This is complex, multifaceted problem that will not be solved solely by a new wonder plastic, new recycling systems, yeah. or better public education. They will all mm, contribute mm. to creating a better and more sustainable environment. But mm. lasting change requires a holistic view. And I think that's really, really important to remember. Totally. This problem, like many problems we're facing right now, is really, really big and really, really scary. And there is no single solution for it. I used to be somebody of the mindset that like plastics are really, really bad, but it's not all doom and gloom. Work is being done to change things. And we are not past the point of no return, like many, many articles are claiming. It's Mm. just going to take a little bit of time. And that's where I want to leave you on right now. A slightly more positive note that it's... Yes. It, we're working on it and it's going to be okay. We're just not quite there yet. Well, it 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 can be okay as long as we It we can are, be okay. We, yes. we express that through like, you know, who we support politically through legislation policy, Absolutely. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um it yeah. I do think it's like a very important point to leave on that like I think 
um, you know, climate doomerism is like such a huge problem for yeah. people our age. Mm-hmm. It is, and and I can see that why that would happen based on what we see in the media. But it Definitely, isn't. We're not yeah. past the point of no return. It would. It is just. Yeah. It's a lot, it's more effort, but we can make that effort. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And it is a good thing for individual consumers to be doing things like recycling, but But it's not just on us to be performing those actions. Yeah. For me, one of the most convincing things from all this was learning the history of the plastics just now, because Mm -hmm. it makes me remember that we lived in a world where things were, were like literally exploding. Like, yeah. like uh-huh. we had exploding things and we changed and like, that's part of the past now. Yeah. And I think, I think now we live in a world where <laughs> we're like, the, the things are exploding much more slowly, yes. which makes it yeah. harder to find. But in, in the same way, I think we can change yeah. to a, a world where we look back and, <laughs> and think like, wow, we were okay with that. Wow. <laughs> you know, we, we let that happen. I also think that it's like kind of a positive thing in terms of the world of like biodegradable plastics and stuff like that going a little bit slower because obviously back in the past we were just like yeah we'll allow the really exploding thing to go out into the world and just do its thing and it'll be fine whereas now taking a bit of time to develop these things in a safe way is a really really positive thing well learning about the history for me was i think showed me this idea of like what we could go back to in the sense of um mm, mm-hmm. we the reason plastics were developed was you know progress be you know progression and convenience and there yeah. was a, a, at one point we were in a a balance of that right you yeah, were using it yeah, where, where it was like actually noticeably beneficial for our lives and what mm-hmm. whereas now we are using it where for any minor inconvenience we could possibly think yeah, of definitely and so yeah. i think there's like this idea that you know we can exist perfectly fine in those few yeah. steps back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i really like that idea definitely yeah Carrie, is it? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am Psychic Ross, and I will be reading you this evening. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. I co-host a podcast. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Yes, I'm sensing that. The spirits are telling me it is a show about Well, it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal. Oh, you knew that. You do research online. But more importantly, like we do in-person investigations. In-person investigate as well. Oh, my God. That's amazing. See? Me and my friend. This is so weird. My friend, Ross. Same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. Today's question is, do any of our hosts have perfect pitch? Yes. Um, so... Oh. Do you actually? Yes, I do. Would you mind if we tested it really quick? Oh, okay. <gasps> Here we go. You gotta name it. Oh, is that oh. is that what perfect pitches? It's naming. No, because I've never learned to read music. So I, how well, could I? How could I name? How, how could you know if you're oh, perfect pitch? Oh, it's my pitch? problem. For you're right. I'm so sorry. Is that a G? Uh uh-uh. uh No. Oh, I tried really C. Hard. C. Here we go. That changed. You changed it. Yes, this is another no. That's oh, how this works. Okay. A, 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 a C. Uh no. I can't read music. Yeah. I don't know what notes are. What are notes? Oh no. A, I, is that 
an E? It is actually. Oh, oh my god! god. <laughs> Alright, hold on, hold on. Oh my god, does Caroline have perfect pitch? Okay, judging by your reaction. I tried. <laughs> I, I, I tried to get it. So. Alright, let's get let's get one let's get one more. C. <laughs> I would have said Oh no. G. I was gonna say G. <laughs> Um, I take it back. I don't have perfect pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought perfect pitch meant just being able to sing perfectly, which I can definitely do. So, well, hold on. Well, how would what does that mean? Can you sing a a specific note if I asked you to? Uh, No, I just mean like have a beautiful, beautiful, angelic singing voice. (laughs) I can match notes. I can't do what Ella's claiming. This this is very interesting in terms of what we all think perfect pitch is. Um, So. I don't have perfect pitch, but fortunately, I know someone who does, and oh. I interviewed them for this show. <gasps> no way! So, <laughs> she's about to go on tour with Cave Town and Orla Gartland in October. Wow. Um, <laughs> this is musician Sydney Gish. Hi, everyone. I'm Sydney Gish. Um, I'm a musician based in New York, and I'm, th- I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Would it be silly if I just played some notes and then you could? Yeah, and I'll try my best because I I do stress, I'll stress eventually whenever I explain this more, but like it is like I have definitely failed, you know, especially at times where I'm put on the spot. But let me, let me try. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. C sharp. Yes. Oh my God. G. Yep. (gasps) Last one. B flat. Yeah, holy shit. Awesome. <laughs> what the fuck? That was that was unedited for time. I did not edit her reaction time at all. Wow. Uh, that's impressive. So I obviously wanted to know what was going on uh, with her brain. And so I did ask her how she would describe perfect pitch. How would you describe perfect pitch? Um, It's kind of like being quizzed on like it takes me a second to think about it but then it becomes obvious it's kind of like multiplication level of processing but like you're identifying colors like because if you look at red you're like okay that's red and like if i get really narcissistic and insane about it like i can kind of get to that (laughs) level but it takes a level of processing like downloading the sound and comparing it to like swatches in my mind um and then you can it's kind of like it takes me a second to process it like it's math equations I mean, there's a limited, wow. there are a limited number of musical notes you can, that can be played. So by yeah. her like logic, it, some perfect pitch isn't like a, it can, it sounds like it probably can be innate, like you can have it naturally, but it sounds like you can probably learn it. In theory, yeah. yeah. It, well, it's interesting because what, what pe- people usually find in the research is that people who learn this or this naming at a young age have a more intuitive sense of it, very much like learning a language, yeah. right? Where it, I, I would almost make the parallel to like perfect pitch is sort of like fluency in a language, right? Like when I when I am trying to speak Spanish, I am struggling. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and what we're going to find is that, to your point, it is more complicated than it seems. There's one last thing that Sydney said that I wanted to play that I thought was super interesting and sort of gets into this nuance. I want to preface everything kind of like more like spectrum yeah. vibes that I say with like the preface that calling this skill perfect pitch is very misleading and very mm, Veruca mm, Salt mm, vibes mm. because like it's like <laughs> it, it comes with the implication that like I'm perfect at singing, I'm perfect at instruments, and I am yeah. perfect. And like yeah. even absolute pitch is like, you know, you'll never be off tune. It's like 
Like just because you can tell the colors of walls in Home Depot or something doesn't mean that you're then the best architect ever. Like it's unrelated. Yeah. The the name of it makes you sound like a really, really annoying person and um, <laughs> like a really, really annoying, obnoxious person. And it's more like like my brain is wet, wet mud with so much ADHD in it. And like if I hear an annoying sound, it's like a big boot print and it will never leave. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I got the, the 12 Western notes in there. Big, big boot prints of those notes. So, you know, if you give me a boot, I can go over to the prints and figure out which one it was. But yeah, I'm not August Rush. And I'm yeah. not claiming to be August Rush when I say that I am have this skill. That's a good point, you know, to the... Just because yeah. you have perfect pitch doesn't mean you can then be like a perfect singer or yeah. a perfect yeah. like musical performer. It's not... Exactly. They're not... They don't aren't necessarily linked. Although I'm sure people who are good musicians tend to sure. have more. Yeah, are more yeah. likely to have perfect pitch. The Home Depot metaphor was really clicked it for me because it's like it's it's an aspect, but it's not. Um, but but to your point, a lot of people make that assumption that that mm. people with perfect pitch are these virtuosos. Um, I wish we had time to play more clips because it was such an interesting and hilarious conversation. But. Uh, the full interview will be available as maximum fun bonus content very soon. Nice, because uh, it was a it was a hilarious conversation. But to continue with what Sydney brought up, a lot of research comes to the same conclusion, which is that perfect pitch is much more messy than we commonly think, and that messiness starts with even the most basic question you can ask about perfect pitch, which is what percent of people have perfect pitch? Ooh, two. Five percent. Uh, I want to make things interesting. This is the first time we've done this with a question. Uh, this question is now open book and open internet. How many people have perfect pitch? Uh, open book question. Okay. How many people have perfect uh, pitch? It's also known as absolute pitch. Okay. So the University of Chicago News says that one in 10,000 or 0.1% of people have perfect pitch. Uh, Caroline? Out of every 10,000 people, only one to five of them will have perfect there pitch. There it is. And it says 4% amongst music students, which is... Yeah. Yeah, this goes on to say every out of 10,000 musicians, between 100 and 1,100 will have perfect pitch. So... This is very interesting because you will find that number one in 10,000 a lot. Yeah. And according to this amazing review of the literature by uh, Cardin and Klein, quote, this figure has been repeated for over six decades, is cited internationally and in a variety of influential and contemporary research articles, and is now widely available through online reference sites. Mm -hmm. However, the data on which that estimate is based is not available in the referenced article. Uh, oh, interesting. The article everyone cites is by a man named A. Basham from 1955. And that article that they cite doesn't have data in it. <laughs> all, it all it says is, quote, quote, an extremely small percentage of the population, parentheses, less than one hundredth of one percent, possesses absolute pitch. <laughs> okay, okay. Which is... A statement. This is like, honestly, I think you would find more common in this kind of like research field than you'd expect where something it's like not important whether or not the number is right. Yeah. So yeah. so people never like take exactly. the effort to actually mm -hmm. research it. That's exactly the point. That you're just like, yeah, that sounds about right. That'll yeah. do. Well, we'll get to that because that is exactly the point of this. But um, 
uh, Cardin and Klein did some even more digging into this number, and they did find a paper of Bosham's that that did have a methodology, like an earlier paper of his, like where he derived this number. Can you guess what that method was? Um, he asked ten people. <laughs> oh, I worry that you're closer to correct than I want you to be. Yeah, just just he just asked some people. He asked a I asked a classroom of his students to put their hands up. So according to Cardin and Klein, quote. He reports his study based on 103 adult participants with absolute pitch. <laughs> and he then anticipates at least 20 more possessors in the city with a population of around 4 million and calculates the prevalence on that basis. <laughs> no. No. That's very funny. That's so silly. So he found 100 and was like, hmm, probably 20 more. <laughs> yeah, we'll say roughly 20 more. That, that'll do, right? Now, to Ella's point... I, the thing is, I don't even think this is really Basham's fault, right? He, he, and he also did a lot of really early research into absolute pitch. But, you know, it wasn't like when he published this guess, he was like, here's my guess. That's the last we ever need to check. No <laughs> one needs to check. I'll be insulted if you do. No one else would be bothered to check. <laughs> yeah, nobody exactly. else wanted and to. The problem is, it's a very satisfying number, right? Mm -hmm. Like anecdotally, one in 10,000 feels right. It, doesn't, it yeah. doesn't seem worth checking. And so we haven't. And to this day, there is not a better guess out there. Well, someone should try and should have a guess. Then shouldn't they? And, and, and we're, we're, well, we're gonna we're gonna see some evidence why they maybe should. Um, but there, there's a quote I always uh, from the podcast you're wrong about that I always think about, which is that we have to be careful of the things that we don't need evidence to believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I think perfect pitch is one of those things because it's like you know we have an, it, we have this intuitive thing. It's like you you some people have this like virtuistic thing, and yeah. So let's break that down. So. Um, First, let's get our definition. So Cardin and Klein say that absolute pitch is defined as the ability to identify instantaneously and accurately music tones presented in isolation. Uh, it's typically distinguished from relative pitch, where a reference note is essential to identifying the tone. Possessors of absolute pitch report that acquiring it was incidental and effortless. I just, uh, I just say that the, the, the concept of absolute pitch, perfect pitch, like requires the language of music. So we we like to 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 yeah. say you have perfect pitch. You need to be tested for that, and to know that you have to know how to read music. I, or, well, so this yeah, I think this is a great point, and I think it's an assumption that is is just made in in music that we are working on this. It's called twelve tone equal temperament. Is like the the Western music style, right? And, yeah. and I agree that like. It's, it's well first of all it's hard to get out of that because it's like just don't listen you, you have to live in a world where you don't listen to music in this style which is kind of difficult i will say in absolute pitch's defense that it seems to be there is a thing that exists outside of the musical language of the western music canon in terms of it seems to be described as like a pitch memory no i'm not arguing that perfect pitch does not exist outside of that yeah, yeah. but i'm saying to be told actually legitimately told you have perfect pitch you have yes, to exactly. you have to have the language of music which means that yeah. any test we apply to people is restrictive 100 percent. because that you there are going to be plenty of people in this world who just don't have that language to express totally. that the, the pitch that's exactly right and it, it gets even more complicated aside from that because uh, well, they they say, so Cardin Klein, they, they quote researchers Sargent and Varakra, who note that there is, quote, almost universal disagreement as to the criteria to be applied to identification of oh. the ability. So, for example, 
how accurate does your perfect pitch have to be within a, a single note? But then to, to your point, Ella, the 12 notes are kind of arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Within half a note, within a hundredth, some people test 24 notes. Some people test over a hundred notes. Some people say you have to answer in a few seconds. Some people leave it open-ended. Mm -hmm. Some people test only with children. Some people test only with adults. Some people mix them up without considering. And it's, <laughs> it's a mess. And it's hard to measure quantitatively. And it, it is sort of like, like I said earlier, it is sort of like language fluency where you you know it when you see it but that doesn't make it any easier to to, to, to quantify yeah. or to measure yeah. and and just like language what we're going to see is that perfect pitch can sometimes be not so perfect as a few studies are going to show us so to demonstrate i'm going to play the same note in two different ways so here's the first one and then here's the second one now what's interesting is one of these was actually easier for people with absolute pitch to guess. Oh. Do you know which one it was? The the first one. I would I would have said the first one as well. Yeah. So it's very interesting because the first one is a sine wave uh, that's generated by a computer and the second is a piano. Mm -hmm. And the the sine wave is a cleaner note. It's a it's a D sharp I played. It's like the platonic ideal of a D sharp versus the piano note has a lot of unnecessary noise and mm. harmonics. Uh, which are what make it sound like a piano. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also known as timbre. Uh, it's spelled timbre, but it's pronounced timbre. Of course. It's annoying. Music's annoying. But in one study, while people with absolute pitch were able to guess the piano notes 99% of the time correctly, they could only guess the sine wave correctly 58% of the time. Interesting. Whoa. So the implication is that, kind of like what Sydney said with like the boot muds in, in the brain, what it seems to show is that perfect pitch isn't like a guitar tuning program in the back of everyone's brain. It seems to be at least partly contextual and related to things like memory. Yeah. So say you learn, yeah. if you learn your perfect pitch entirely from computer tones, then you'd probably, you'd probably be okay. Yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Um, but most, most of us don't. Uh, <laughs> now, another study supports this idea from the opposite side of the spectrum. So the last one looked at people with absolute pitch that we're failing. This one looks at people who don't have it succeeding. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you both of you hinted at this. So what they did was they tested participants who didn't have absolute pitch on theme songs from popular TV shows like Friends, Jeopardy, mm -hmm. X-Files, and The Simpsons. And they played them a clip from the original version and then one that was pitch shifted up or down. So uh, for example... Oh my God, are you gonna... Do we get to guess... <gasps> Was that the original or was it pitch shifted? This is hard because you guys don't aren't like listening to the end of the show every single week like like you would. It's like some people do The Simpsons, but I'm also going to make it a little harder. Uh, in the original experiment, they played two versions and you had to guess which was the original. I just want to see if you guys can tell if this one is the original or not. Uh, I thought it was up. I, 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 I thought maybe it was pitch shifted up. but I thought it was pitch shifted up until like the main part of it started and then i was like i have no clue so i'm gonna stick with my initial feeling and be very gracious when i'm told i'm wrong it was a trick question uh, so it was it was pitch shifted up one semitone Ooh. which is that is a difference from like c to c sharp 
I mean, uh-huh. I can hear the difference there, though. Right. But the, what's interesting, Ella, is you didn't hear the comparison. You only heard the comparison in your memory. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I didn't yeah, play yeah, yeah. one and the other just like just now. And this is what they find. This is known as the Levitin effect. And it's the idea that more people than we think have pitch memory, just not the ability to label it, which is exactly what you were yeah. saying. Oh, okay. So I'm, you were spot on. So... What they found is that if the shift was off by only one semitone, so from C to C sharp, people were often right 7% better than chance. Mm -hmm. But if the shift was a full tone, two semitones, so from C to D, like, they were right 20% better than chance. So 70% of the time, they could tell which of the two versions was the original pitch. Mm -hmm. And these are people without absolute pitch. Um, they found a similar effect when asking people to sing songs that they knew, which I thought was really fun. Oh. Um, and also recognizing the pitch of things like telephone dial tone. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Obviously wouldn't expect that. And to the generational thing, wouldn't expect that. But it would probably work with whatever annoying TikTok trend sound you've heard for like the millionth time. Yeah. Um, like that one monkey one where it's like, do, do, do. Doo-doo. Yeah, I could tell that was pitched up slightly. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I almost gotcha. Um, now, I, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not saying that perfect pitch is fake. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm also not saying that like everyone has perfect pitch. Um, like these these changes from these experiments aren't like super extreme. But I- instead, the point is that it's. It's it's nuanced and, yeah. and digging into that nuance, challenging things like that one in 10,000 number is exactly how we learn more. And to end this off, I want to say one of the most interesting ways for us to challenge our assumptions is to look at perfect pitch beyond just humans. So oh, yay. Uh, I want to ask, do you think that other species have perfect pitch? I think if any species is going to have perfect pitch, it's going to be some kind of bird, right? Where tone is like incredibly important for yeah, communication yeah 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 i was gonna say the same thing about the things that i know which is frogs and that they do mm. like respond to very specific calls from each other oh yeah something that we and wouldn't that, be able to tell the great difference intuition at all. yeah exactly that yeah. yeah 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 where like only professionals would know yeah 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 so the, the short answer is yes um, obviously, I, I, you know, I wish I could. I can't go through the entire animal kingdom. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's also in part because, like, as we just said, we can barely test it uniformly across humans, yeah. let alone across animals, especially because uh, they have different hearing ranges. It, it, it's it even makes it even more complicated. But I will say, um, Marisa Herschel did an amazing review of animal pitch perception that will be in the show notes. So interesting. As you might expect, animals like dolphins are, oh, are, yeah. are able to do Whales, really cool things yeah. yeah cetaceans in general are able to do cool things where um if they hear a melody in one octave they can make the same melody in a different octave that's more comfortable for their vocal range no way so if i were to be like do 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 then like a, a dolphin could be like do 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 because it, it's more comfortable to their range which yeah. is like that's, That's so, so, cool. so cool. But what amazed me is, uh, to Carolyn's point with frogs, that even small animals show some pitch abilities, uh, including one strange animal. Animal? <laughs> one strange animal uh, I don't think we've actually mentioned on the show, which are mosquitoes. Uh, so when, yeah, when, when yellow fever mosquitoes are mating, they'll make a humming tone by like vibrating their wings. 
And when two mating mosquitoes are close to each other, they will start adjusting their pitches to match. Oh, that's really cool. But what's really interesting... Tom, no, I don't want you to be telling me cool things about mosquitoes. <laughs> I like mosquitoes. God damn it. So what's, what's even more interesting is that they don't just match their pitches to the same note. They actually harmonize so that their no harmonics oh my God, that's so cool. of their notes like sync up and become louder so uh basically when mosquitoes mate they're just like let's make babies B e e e baby. I I'm, up, I'm up here you're down <laughs> here you're, you're down here babies. let's bone let's bone, bone down, down. <laughs> this is why we practice every week we'll never make nationals <laughs> it's regionals uh, baby now uh, <laughs> as much as I <laughs> joked about that, like obviously this isn't the same thing as absolute pitch in humans, uh, but it, it's like a fun reminder that even though music is a very like human and social thing, that like pitch and harmony are natural things that happen. Um, and uh, I want to mention this study really quickly just because I loved the mental images of it. Um, so they were trying to see if rats had perfect pitch. And for the most part, they they seem to sort of like dolphins, they're able to recognize the same melody in a different octave, which is very interesting. Uh, but I loved it because the paper is full of quotes like, we familiarized the animals with the happy birthday tune on a piano. <laughs> which is, uh, it's delightful, but it's, I, I will say it's like a huge methodological oversight because they didn't account for if it was actually the rat's birthday or not. Oh. Awful. <laughs> Obviously that would affect behavior. Um, uh, but but <laughs> I, I joke, but like in reality, the methodology for this paper is so extensive. I've literally never heard happy birthday described with so much detail. It, it feels like an alien reporting back what human, what they're singing. It goes, quote, the tones include eight different pitches. G5, 783.9 hertz. A5, 880 hertz. B5, 987.8 hertz. Oh the tones have God. three different durations. One half note, 857.14 milliseconds. Eight quarter notes, 428.5 milliseconds. The tempo of the beat occurred at the frequency of 2.33 hertz at the metronomic 140 beats per Amazing. Point. They're really going for repeatability there, aren't they? <laughs> wow. Honestly, I love it. I truly <laughs> truly and what we're gonna find in this final study is that this level of attention to detail may actually be exactly what we need so the last study i want to talk about involves the animal that ella guessed and that most people test with perfect pitch which are songbirds mm. there's a headline <laughs> i love from the new york times from 1991 that reads Perfect pitch, rampant among birds. <laughs> <laughs> it's an epidemic. Pigeons won't stop telling me what key this song is. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, but I learned the reason why this is rampant is because according to one study, quote, the avian auditory system follows the general vertebrate plan, including telencephalic circuits organized in a radial columnar pattern that are anatomically, genetically, and functionally analogous to the mammalian auditory cortical microcircuit. Fancy way of saying birds seem to hear like humans, which is oh. wild. And, 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 and bird, birds do have an amazing sense of absolute pitch, uh, probably more so than humans, but there is something very interesting that we take for granted. Uh, so this is my favorite study of the bunch by far. It's a study by Bregman, Patel, and Gensner from 2016. And the methodology for this paper is so great that they actually provided the audio files that they used in the experiment. Nice. And I will get to play for y'all right now. So 
uh, they, they were training starlings, which are a songbird. Mm-hmm. And first they trained them on two different melodies that were played on a synthesized brass instrument. So they sound like this. This is the first one. And this is the second one. Okay. So can you can you tell the difference between them? One goes up, one goes down. Exactly, Caroline. So the first one goes up and the second one goes down. And they trained the starlings so that if they hear the tune that goes up, they should turn to the left door for food. And if they hear the second melody that goes down, they should turn right for food. And like, cool, they learn it mm-hmm. as we would expect. They're, they're, they got great hearing. And then what was interesting is they play the same melody on a different instrument, on a synthesized oh. piano. So, for instance, they trained them on this one, right? And then they played it on this piano. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that we can both tell that those are the same. It's the one going mm-hmm. up. Yeah. But the birds did not know which way to go. None of them. Even though oh. you and I significantly reduced, like to okay. basically chance. The idea is that, like, two birds, that same melody on two different instruments sounds like two different melodies. Yeah. Yeah. But what's absolutely wild is when they tested it with a third instrument. So I'm going to play, this was what they were trained on, the brass instrument. Mm-hmm. This was the second instrument that they failed on, the piano. Uh, and this, this was the third instrument. Ew, what is that? The screams of my enemies. Is that something found in nature? No. So, listeners, uh, the audio did not glitch out there. So, weirdly enough, when birds heard that, they knew to go left. Uh. They figured that out, but not the piano? Exactly. What? Why? What you're hearing is a spectral vocoder. It's, it's an algorithmically jarbled version of the brass instrument, the original thing they were trained on. And what they do is uh. they... They take the audio, they slice it up mm-hmm. a bunch. They like randomize the pitch so that it has the same like values on average. Okay, yeah. The metaphor I would use is this. It's like if you saw a photo of Obama and then you saw a photo of Obama wearing a bucket hat, the bird would be like, who is this man? He has an entirely different head shape. Yeah. But <laughs> if, if you showed a bird a photo of Obama where like you smeared all the pixels, mm-hmm. but his outline was the same their bird would be like, oh, yeah, that's Obama. Okay. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Thank you, Obama. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Obama. So it, it seems like birds care more about the spectral matching of sounds mm-hmm. than the melodic similarities, mm-hmm. at least in some instances. Yeah. Uh, I heard one paper describe it that music for birds might be what language is for us mm-hmm. because, you know, when we hear... If I sing a sentence, you can parse the language independently of the music, right? Yeah. So obviously a million questions to ask about this, this, this revelation that like we can ask this question, but I, I feel like we have uh, wandered a bit far from the original question. So uh, like to bring it back, for me, the point of that experiment and all the other experiments is that there are so many questions that still need to be asked about what seems at first like such a simple thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cardin and Klein note in their conclusion that, quote, regrettably, consideration of absolute pitch is typically reduced to one question with two possible answers. And, and the whole point of their review, this review that I keep citing, is that music research and music education can all benefit from learning from each other. 
They say, quote, as an absolute pitch possessor commented to the first author, if you have it, you do not know what it is like to not have it and vice versa. Indeed, we cannot assume that all possessors of absolute pitch have similar experiences. To understand differences and help lead research, there needs to be dialogue. Um, and this is, they note that it's especially important with kids because uh, mm -hmm. when they have absolute pitch, usually they don't have someone to talk about it with. And uh, they are sometimes, quote, reduced to the role of human tuning forks no. for choirs and orchestra. <laughs> and on the flip side, for kids who think they might not have absolute pitch, Cardin and Klein note that, quote, prevalence of absolute pitch should not be confused with potential. Mm -hmm. Studies identify those with absolute pitch and rarely discuss the theoretical group for whom this capacity has not been triggered by necessary early experiences. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's like that that graph of uh, left-handed people yeah. growing with time, right? Where people just felt more comfortable saying that they were left-handed. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say that, like, at first it can seem frustrating that something like perfect pitch that is like so neatly packaged in the, the cultural zeitgeist as like it's like a gift it's like it's perfect pitch and it, it can be frustrating that it can be not so perfect yeah um but really what this means is that there's so much room to explore and to learn and to improve and yeah the music and science are both so complex um and it makes it makes for a more interesting world, both musically and scientifically. And who knows, maybe spectral vocoders are what kids will be listening to in, in 2040. Oh, God, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're, you're pairing, like old... <laughs> when old people say, God, I just don't get the music of today. I'd be like, oh, oh yes, God. that yeah. is, yeah. is what will make me say that. Oh, I <laughs> love this song on karaoke. Bump it! <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's slightest topic is generations. What do you think I mean by that? like oh no generations oh huh? as in every what is it like two decades we randomly assign the next people who've been two? born uh, Interesting. a different name is it two like two and a bit your, your guess is as good as anyone's um and i think the <laughs> well except for yours because you did research but as good as mine the fact the fact that you've landed on two decades as like a defined like this is where we separate or somewhere around here is very interesting tom what what do you think yeah i mean i just think of like gen x gen z yeah. millennials boomers zoomers these are sort of the I, I, i'm trying to think like who is it like news places like just it's it's, it's a useful shorthand for mm. describing 
generations of people but to be completely honest generations how like, though like that's a yeah i i how are I, they I, defined I, 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 you're right i'm using the word to describe the word that's like, i was it, like you know generations of people yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but you know when i hear the word generation what i think is an actual what is an actual generation me my mother my grandmother a generation oh, of, yeah. of, of a lineage. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about no, the ones right. you're yeah. saying, which is why this is a miscellaneous topic and not a science topic. And some people <laughs> are gonna... This is a bit contentious, me putting this as a miscellaneous Ooh. topic and not a science topic. But this topic is my argument for why i don't think these things are scientific. Well, I was gonna say, I totally forgot. Like, yeah, the point in my mind, like my colloquial understanding is like, generations of family makes sense to me yeah definitely and then these popular generations in time the the gen z the gen x feel sort of like some way to like approximate it yeah i think you know the idea is that it's a group of people that in theory were the same age at the same time yeah 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 i think that's probably a very good way to put it i'll just quickly define what the generations are that we know Mm-hmm. and these Ooh. label generations so that we when i yeah. talk about them as we go forward it's very clear so when did it start that is a good question too tom yeah. i'm going to start in my terminology at the greatest generation mm-hmm. which is they were born before 1928 okay and then they are as of 2015 which is where this goes up to they are 88 to 100 which makes that a 22 year range from 1928 mm-hmm. roughly I, so i assume that was to demarcate the first world war mm, yeah sort of you group thought, of maybe <laughs> yeah maybe that was good guess i don't know i mean i do know <laughs> every time you say something i want to say this now it is as good as any other shit i've read but maybe i'm getting Perfect. ahead of myself <laughs> i'm so excited the silent generation after that 1928 to 1945 world war Two. yeah uh-huh well specifically the silent generation this is a, a little bit more defined in my mind, is but we're born between mm. world wars, more yes. specifically. Mm. Yeah. Then we've got the baby boom generation, 1946 to 1964. You know, very confidently we understand what these are from now on. Generation X, which is my parents, 1965 to 1980. Millennials, that's me and Tom, 1980 to 1995-96. Yeah. And then after that is Gen Z which doesn't have a, de- a defined end yet. Although some people... Guys, should have started with an earlier letter, my guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's very short-sighted. Well, the reason, the reason it happened is because it, it's Gen X. It wasn't supposed to be Gen X, Y, Z. It's just that Gen X has, it, has oh. its own label for that reason. Speaking to X-Men. Because, yeah, yeah because of X-Men. <laughs> uh, that's when it started. So, I mean, these are our generational labels and boundaries. Mm-hmm. But where did they come from, the labels? I feel like it's... Wait, the labels themselves or like... Yeah, yeah, the oh. labels first. Like like the first one? Like why did it happen? Like, yeah, why did... Why did it, where did it come from? That's a great question. Because, it, 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 you know, it's not like there's like an international age council that came together and was like... Yeah, sure. I mean, there is, there isn't. You're right, there isn't. But that, okay. hasn't, <laughs> stopped, me. that hasn't stopped people from making these terms into research terms. Like my, I, I mean, yeah, it, my best guess is just like some newspaper says it once you know what tom you're absolutely right the first the thing i want to say before i get into what is going to be a lot of criticism is that general la- <laughs> generational labels are not new grouping people based on age and common mm. experience is something people love to do and will always do 
right? Mm -hmm. A lot of what we're going to talk about is nothing to do with that specific idea. So, but just to give you just a little bit of info. So in 1951, an article in Time magazine said, the most startling fact about the younger generation is its silence. With some rare expectation, youth is nowhere near the rostrum. By comparison with the flaming youth of their fathers and mothers, today's younger generation is a still small flame. It does not issue manifestos, make speeches or carry posters. It has been called the silent generation. Hmm, citation needed. <laughs> That's the <laughs> just, first time. Just, just going to throw that out. <laughs> the first time we know that that was referenced, the silent generation. Interesting. Uh, the first recorded use of Baby Boomer is in a January 1963 Daily Press article. Sometimes people put year boundaries around these kind of labels, but they would, they really just like colloquially use labels, right? Yeah. Yeah. But. In 1987, authors William Strauss and Neil Howe coined the term millennial, mm -hmm. and they went on to develop something called the Strauss-Howe generational theory together, which is the idea that recurring oh. generation cycles occur in American and Western history. So millennials was like the first generational label that wasn't coined oh. as this casual term like the ones before. It had very clear intent. Huh. That's very interesting. I gotta say... The, the vibe I'm getting from this is, is something that is so common in computer science, which is retrofitting a logical system from a random idea. <gasps> yes, yes. Okay, you, you, you are so right, Tom, and that's going to become more and more clear as we go on and more and more frustrating in a, in a lot of ways as well. But I got to say, this I had no idea that it, it, it's like, you know, on the third, it's like on the fourth one, right, with millennial that like, people were trying to devise a system. I think that's... Mm -hmm. wh what year was this again? They coined the term millennial in 1987 when millennials would have been... The oldest would have been seven. So yeah. way too early to actually know anything about the generation just, of people. seven! But they brought the book out in the mid-90s. Okay, yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. That's so interesting. So, but, but Strauss and Howe actually made discrete general... <laughs> Sorry, this is so ridiculous. So, oh, I can't wait. Strauss and Howe actually made discrete generational labels and boundaries all the way back to Shut up. 1433. Shut up. Which is Are called... Fucking kidding me! That's so funny. That, they called that, that generation is... the Arthurian generation, and that's about a twenty-year period. The, the hubris to go to to go that far back. So good. Oh, they must have so had funny. so much time on their hands. Oh my god. That's yeah. It's very. It's really interesting. A lot of their a lot of popularity and further work on generational labels can be traced back to. Strauss and Howe's work. Wow, really? So before I move on, I want to say they were not scientists or sociologists <laughs> or economists. They oh, didn't have oh. they didn't have backgrounds in in this area. They didn't conduct research. They were authors and playwrights. They're pop sociologists and historians. Stop it. What the fuck? They weren't no. even historians. No. Get. No. Who gave them the audacity to write down. on this? What were, what were they thinking? What? And this is just what we've gone I... with since then? <laughs> yeah. What? I... I could not be happier. I was really, I was really worried um, when you were t talking about this that you, this was gonna be the answer was gonna be like, where does this come from? Ooh, it's a mystery. Instead, there's this this horrifically ugly smoking gun that has their names etched into it. <laughs> I wow. can't believe. Oh my god, I'm so annoyed at that. 
<laughs> yeah. I, I do want to say, it's not to say that there are no good ideas in their work. I think the generational no, like I, theory and the idea of like grouping people by age is very important. But it's something to think about is that this was not research-based and they did not yeah. have a background in it. I mean, and again, to, to, to the perfect pitch thing, I think, I think as much to blame as these two people saying something out loud is everyone else being like, yeah, that sounds good, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, a lot of work, a lot of future work on generational labels is based on Strauss and Howe's work. But boundaries, generational boundaries that we primarily use now, that we understand, and like this idea you had, Caroline, this kind of 15 to 20 year period, these primarily come out of something called the Pew Research Center, um, mm. which you may have heard of. It's a, they're a nonpartisan American think tank that provides information on social issues, public opinion, and demographic trends shaping the United States. And for those who don't know, mm. I think tank is a body of experts providing ideas on like specifically political or economic problems yeah um, pew isn't the only think tank that uses generational boundaries but the dates that come from pew are seem to be the widely accepted ones okay yeah mm. yeah i will say i i can understand it from because I, 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 I totally forgot about this but like in a data collection perspective yeah yeah to yeah. Like have yeah, buckets makes yeah. more sense uh yeah yeah having bins defined bins is yeah. like is very useful for some things but something we're going to get into i think is the idea that it's now so widely applied that it's not useful anymore yeah yeah so but and before i get because i'm going to go into a lot of criticism now i want to say the people at the p the people at the p research center they are like legit they have masters and phds in politics and economics mm -hmm. but like with any science there should never just be or any research all of that information shouldn't be coming out of one center yeah, it should yeah. be coming out of from many, many different places of work. Yeah, one hundred percent. Um, and that kind of raised red flag for me, so I started to look at some of the criticisms. Mm -hmm. Um, and the first one is one of my own, actually. Um, but I and you'll <laughs> let me know if you think this is valid. You should have. I'm sorry, Ella. You should have prefaced it. You should have prefaced it by saying like a London doctor once said this. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn! Well, imagine I said that, and I, and I'm very funny. Um. The, <laughs> So the only real, really generation, the real, only real generation defined by an actual event, which is often how they try and define these generations, are baby boomers. So, mm, I mean, mm. I, everyone knows this, the boom of children born in the years post-World yeah. War II, it's a very real thing that happened. You mm -hmm, had a massive mm -hmm. spike yeah. in... It's a um, phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. And after that, Strauss and Howe, they actually try and give other generations label, like events to define them. Oh, oh this is... So funny. Um, but they're so. I'm picturing. I'm picturing. Listen, I, again, I don't want to rag too hard, but I'm picturing like this is like a a fun social studies experiment to be like go through history and come up with a name. Oh, it really really like, yeah, exactly. is, isn't it? Yeah. So, but like in the same way, you're like trying to, be, you know, on like the thirtieth one, you're like, uh, I don't know. If, uh, if, uh, well, they did. Um, I just want to say they did this for oh, <laughs> the guillotine. I don't know the guillotine uh, yeah. generation. <laughs> they really did do this for all like like 15 to 20 year increment generations back to the 1400s no so which is why how can you take way. this with any seriousness right yeah that, it's just it's just no, there's no remotely close sociological like categorization let alone mm -hmm. like 15 increments for thousands of years exactly do you do you happen to have more examples of something? i only yeah, have i only have the, the you should go on their wikipedia page because they ha it has it all laid out and they're so funny oh, but i just have oh, um, the examples for millennials down here which is these are the events that defined uh tom and i the rise of the internet 9-11 okay. the yeah. iraq war 
I was six when 9-11 happened and the oldest millennials were 20. I imagine mm-hmm. it impacted us slightly differently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, also, like, listen, I, I, I think they, they explicitly say that this is, like, American and Western. Yeah, culture, this like, is very just, Western. Just to be, like, just to be, like... <laughs> Like guys, there's there's a lot of places. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, this is there's a lot of shit happened. This Crazy. is easy. I was mm-hmm. like, this is like the the really common and obvious criticism that America. This yeah. is American data. Yeah, especially the the stuff that Pew researches and and does data collection on. They don't claim that it should apply outside of the USA, but that mm-hmm. hasn't stopped the rest of the world from adopting it. No. Yeah. 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 It's been pretty ubiquitously adopted in the UK, for example. Yeah. And there are think tanks here, like the Resolution Foundation, that have, they've taken the American generational labels and just slightly changed the dates and the descriptions to fit the UK better. Oh. Uh, but it's, yeah, you like know, it's trying... Instead of plastic bag generation, they say. <laughs> it's just like, I feel like it's exactly what you're saying, Tom, like retroactively fitting, putting a square mm-hmm. peg into a round yeah. hole. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's really just, it feels very... D- like silly to me yeah yeah i do want to say that of the kind of strauss and how fitting events to label generations in they have taken this a step further which the pew research center don't do thankfully because right it's a bit more despised. <laughs> but what, one of the things they do is they they argue that each generation has a common characteristic that gives it a specific character Stop archetype it. no no Stop no it. this is like back to okay personality quizzes in like exactly patreon episode yeah but also i mean you know i see this from a a a a playwright perspective it's a fun way to to categorize people people, it is of course it is it's very fun it's it it could be harmless until people start to that's the thing like this could be absolutely harmless but now everybody's adopted it, so it's just like a thing. Oh. This idea that there are four like archetypes that go through like you know hundred year cycles, and it's the it's the prophet, nomad, hero, or artist. Stop! Fuck! Stop off. it! I was going to say shit like that as a joke. I was going to be like the fool, <laughs> the <laughs> hero, but like it's not. They're not jokes. <sighs> I haven't read this work, so there might be something there. But regardless, social theory shouldn't sound like they come out of a D and D campaign. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, wow. <laughs> this is amazing. I do have to I'll just jump back very quickly to the fact that this is American data. Do you yeah. know what that means, Tom? Oh, no. That means you're a millennial, but I'm not. <laughs> oh, yes. Whoa. <laughs> What's your Hogwarts house again, Tom? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that means I'm a hero and you're, uh, you're a peasant, I think is what they class that as. <laughs> the name for that, that quirk. I actually think that this generation was supposed to be a nomad. I'm not sure. I can't remember. <laughs> That's a classic nomad thing to say. <laughs> Moving on to the next criticisms. Now that we understand we are talking about Americans, okay? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so these are other people's criticisms now that I thought were really interesting. So in, in 2018, Australian economist John Quiggin wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times titled Millennial Means Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes this argument that separating people by generations ultimately does more harm than good by obscuring individual factors that actually shape our attitudes and opportunities yeah. <laughs> in life. Totally. And he goes a different few ways at this, but one of the things is he brings up the me, 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 like selfish, lazy millennial generation. 
yeah, uh, which we've yeah. all heard of that kind of label. And this is a slight detour, but here are some of the fun examples of articles bl- blaming millennials oh, for no. the world's problems. Oh, man. Millennial oh, drivers are highway boy. hazard, survey shows. Uh, a generation with a huge success of entitlement. Bosses complain that millennials are spoilt, full of themselves, averse to hard work and expect success on a plate. So what does that mean for society? <sighs> a boss's guide to managing bratty millennials. <gasps> <laughs> Memo to millennials. That awful feeling you've got is called losing. It happens. Uh, oh my God. Oh my God. Generation worse. And of course, <sighs> uh, the absolute classic. Millionaire tells millennials, if you want a house, stop buying avocado toast. Oh, my God. I forget sometimes that that's not a joke, that that is a thing people said said verbatim. Not not even just said it, sent it to an editor and they Uh went, oh, hell yeah, 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 it's great. And, like, I want to make the point that this can, (sighs) like, these are, like, shitty article headlines so it can feel like ultimately harmless and just it's yeah. slightly divisive but this doesn't just apply mm, to mm. bad journalism mm, so mm, psychologist gene twenge wrote uh, authored a book in 2006 called generation me where this mm. legitimate researcher attributes millennials with the traits of confidence and tolerance but also describes them as being entitled and narcissistic um, and this is based almost entirely on one survey showing increased narcissism amongst millennials. Can right. I also, I, I don't know if you're going to bring this up, but like the other extremely confounding factor in all of this is that like when you're talking about millennials, sometimes you're just talking about children and it's like... I mean, like at you, this point, it, it, they were yeah. absolutely talking about children, maybe some adults, but yeah. And it, it, it's like, are you talking about if you want to talk about children just say children versus saying that like somehow this mm-hmm. group of people will that forever and fundamentally be such yeah. such a good point that i'm gonna get on to i'll just say about oh, this yeah. uh about gene twenge psychologist jeffrey arnett of clark university criticized this book and said it's vastly Classic. misinterpreting yeah. or over interpreting the data and it's very and, and mm, mm. criticizes it's very destructive to put these separations which i completely agree with vastly Good. misinterpreting yeah. and over interpreting yeah and and to your point tom about you're just saying children i would say that the tide has really changed on these kinds of article headlines and t- and psychological takes hmm. things tend to now lean towards understanding why millennials don't want to have children or work a 12 hour a day or have to live with their yeah. parents yeah. but you know what has changed they're just older yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the oldest millennials are 42. Uh, the criticisms mm-hmm. had nothing to do with their generation. It yeah. was just that classic excuse to lump a cohort together as a faceless group yeah. of yeah, young people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't millennials like Blue's Clues anymore? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, as we know, people have always blamed the younger generations. Yeah. Yeah. We defy anyone who goes about with his eyes open to deny that there is, as never before, an attitude on the part of young folk which is best described as grossly thoughtless, rude and utterly selfish. That's in The Conduct of Young People in the whole Daily Mail in 1925. What? No, 1925! 1925! Oh my god! Oh, wait. Wow! Wow! I find by sad experience how the towns and streets are filled with lewd, wicked children. And many children, as they have played about the streets, have been heard to curse and swear and call one another nicknames. And it would grieve one's heart to hear what bawdy and filthy communications proceed from the mouths of such. A little book for children and youth from 1695. 1695! 1695! Oh, it gets better. People were like, kids are swearing too much. 
Young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. This is from Rhetoric by Aristotle in 4th century BC. Get out of town! This doesn't necessarily do the generational label, just I think the criticism of that, I think it, it shows, if anything more, it means nothing because older generations are always going to have this criticism against young generations, regardless oh, yeah. of any kind of labelling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just coming to the back of uh, Quiggin's article, Millennial Means Nothing, he makes a really important point that the millennial cohort is different in important ways. They're more likely to be ethnically diverse in the US, they are more likely to go to mm. university, and they're more likely to vote Democrat. But when you break these mm. statistics down to more individual characteristics, we see things like that it's black millennials that are much more likely to vote Democrat than white millennials. Yeah, and <laughs> and this is uh, also true. That's something that's passed down from their parents. Yeah, it, yeah. It's this it, it's this idea of individual experiences being more likely to shape a person than generational right, attitudes. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it's like which of these? It, this is like the easiest category to reach for, but it doesn't mean it's the best one by far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I believe that societal attitudes—they just—they're always going to change. Yeah, we me- we measure them in generations. But change happens very gradually over mm-hmm. year by year, not in discrete 15 to 20 year increments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the way back through time immemorial. <laughs> oh. um, a final quote from that article I thought was really interesting. I'll just end this article on. It says, some may argue that the generation game, if intellectual vacuous, is basically harmless. But dividing society by generation obscures the real and enduring lines of race, class yeah. and gender. Yeah. When, for example, baby boomers are blamed for ruining America... The argument lumps together Donald Trump and a six-year-old black woman who works for minimum wage cleaning one of his hotels. Yeah. Yep. That's a great quote. Wow. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And in the interest of fairness, Michael Dimmock, who's who was the president of Pew Research Center at the, at the time, did respond to this. Oh. He said, we agree that when it comes to understanding people's values, behaviors, and life outcomes, the generational signals often pale in comparison with other more fundamental factors like race, class, and gender. Yeah. We also mm-hmm. agree that generational labels quickly become unproductive when they turn into overgeneralized caricatures. But the risk of overgeneralization does not justify ignoring the, that the social, political, and economic and technological context in which one comes of age can have a meaningful effect worthy of study, which I kind I do agree with. Yeah, yeah, I, can, yeah. I can see it. But I th- the Pew Research Center's their best known work and so much of their work is now entirely defined by the generational labels that yeah. I think anyone could say yeah. anything to them and they would always try and come back with this excuse. Yeah, yeah. And also when it comes to sort of like... Um, you know, this com- comes to the idea of like media literacy and stuff like that, like understanding the repercussions about talking about these things and emphasizing them. They have an yeah. influence beyond just like y- just your focus, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. So that was in 2018. In May 2021, sociologist Philip Cohn from the University of Maryland wrote an open letter to the Pew Research Center urging them oh. to stop using generational labels at all. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. As he, as he wow. argued that they went wow. against scientific principles of social research. Mm-hmm. That's that's a bold statement. But yeah, that's the whole. Yeah. That's the other side of the spectrum. In the in the interest of time, I'll go through some of these points very quickly. So yeah. the division between generations is arbitrary and has no scientific basis. With the yes. exception of the baby boom, which is a discrete demographic, like we talked about, the other generations yep. have been declared and named on an ad hoc basis without empirical or theoretical <laughs> no. justification. 
Even theoretical yeah. justification. Naming <laughs> generations enough. and fixing their birth dates promotes pseudoscience, undermines public understanding and impedes social science research. Um, this is mm. something I find really interesting. He says that predetermined cohort categories impede scientific discovery by artificially imposing these categories on research yeah. rather than researchers like making decisions about the data. Like you're saying mm-hmm. about this idea mm-hmm. of binning data, Tom. Is, is really useful, but what happens is researchers mm. take these pre-assigned categories rather than coming up with their own that are more relevant for different situations. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the next is kind of the biggest for me, which is that the generations are widely yeah. misunderstood to be official categories and identities yeah. because the Pew Research Centre has a very yeah. trustworthy reputation as a research institution. Yeah. It's helped fuel the false belief that the generation definitions are like real social official yeah. statistics and labels. Yeah. And the last point, the last point he makes is just a burn. The generation scheme. <laughs> the generation scheme has become a parody and should end. Wow. Damn. With the identification of Generation Z, Pew has apparently reached the end of the alphabet. <laughs> Will this continue forever with arbitrarily defined stereotypically level generation names sequentially added to the list? I mean, and he goes on. I, I will say, like, just like I hadn't considered the fact that like the transition from descriptive names to literally letters shows how like it has turned into like a pseudo process Mm -hmm. where like and 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 to to your point you get the assumption that it's like oh we're going xyz like this is a this is a thing that we have to do and it's like there are already people labeling the generation after mine as generation alpha and these people are literally five years old and we are already trying to assign the next label to them i will say Generation Alpha really into Blue's Clues. I'm trying to figure out what the connection is here. Maybe it skips a generation? Maybe that's the thing. Yeah, I think it does. Um, Pew did respond to this open letter. I'm um, shocked. This is Kim Parker, yeah. the director of Social Trends. Can I say, uh, Gala, I'm, nothing I love more than back and forth drama. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. good, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's... it's the open letter was pretty harsh. The, yeah. the response is, is very is timid, um, which yeah. as it has to be. It basically just says that whilst there are limitations to generational analysis, it can be a useful tool for understanding demographic trends and shifting public attitudes. <laughs> and they don't yeah. like that labels are misused and they want to improve. And it's just what they're always going to say. Because if I'm being cynical, I think regardless of criticism, Pew will never stop working on these labels because no, it is won't. what they're known yeah. for. There's so much yeah. momentum in it already for them. It's hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Pew rightly has pointed out that an individual's age is one of the most common predictors of differences in attitudes and behaviours. And the age cohorts like generations can be like, a, as you said, Tom, a really useful tool yeah. for researchers, for data analysis, for advertising and media. Mm. But it is, it is their, it's their <laughs> insistence and our insistence as a society to apply yeah. these generational boundaries to yeah. all social yeah. issues without nuance. Yeah, yep. yeah. I find very yep. frustrating. That it's incepted popular culture and made things more divisive is just the cherry on yeah. top. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> yep, that's me. Ugh. That was so interesting wow. and so much fun to get annoyed about, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, again, I, 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 at first when you were like timid about it, I thought maybe it was because there wasn't going to be like a hard trail but instead i realize now you were timid because you had this full autopsy uh prepared for us <laughs> on the operating table uh wow like i said at the start generational labels will always be used yeah 
um, I would not criticise anyone for using one in like a colloquial kind of general term. Yeah. I would I would say my takeaway from this is to remember that I don't believe these have any like standing in actual yeah. like science. Yeah. Yes, yes. They can only be used like as a very, very general tool. And if you hold stock in your generation, maybe like try and reflect yeah, on that yeah. and pull back because it's probably less meaningful than you think it is. I, I also, I got to say like more so than like landing on like they should be abolished and like there's real science this discussion this like meta discussion about generation labeling is so fascinating like the fact that i i almost wish aristotle had been like hey isn't it weird that we keep uh hating on the younger yeah, generation yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah and and you know it is these these meta studies i hope in theory are ramping up and becoming more self-aware as we are yeah, able to like look, yeah. look back across time to maybe one day have um thoughts bigger than aristotle on on, on what it means what generation <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is it review corner hey that's my that's my thing <laughs> get out of here get out of this corner this is my get corner. Out of the corner yeah get out of the studio you know you know what this from the corner you know what this corner is tom hey tom come to my corner <laughs> do you oh, know you what? two Look have fun in the corner oh, together I, okay. I know this corner this is one of my favorite corners ella oh what is it well it's review corner <gasps> <laughs> i can't believe i can't believe there's lore for this. <laughs> um, uh today's review comes from scott p aka nix on apple Podcasts, and they say top-notch stuff i absolutely love these three science nerds with all my heart i've been following this podcast closely since i discovered it a couple of months ago and as a person who listens to and enjoys many different podcasts this is by far the one i look forward to the most Aww. tom caroline and ella have amazing chemistry a combination of their unique yet complementing personalities and expertise in their respective science fields with their slightly different styles of humor makes for the perfect <laughs> podcast at the end of each episode i always walk away feeling happy and uplifted and measurably Aww. smarter Thank you so Aww. much. What was their username? Sorry, Scott P. Scott, thank you so much. That was so thank lovely. You. Truly, thank you. All right, then, friendos. Do we have any plugs or shout outs? I want to give a quick shout out to Depths of Wikipedia uh, for letting me guest on a live show in New York City. A bit oh, ago. yeah. Uh, and of course, I want to plug Sydney Gish, a friend of the oh, show. Oh, yes. Go listen to her music on Spotify and wherever. And also go see her on tour in the EU and the UK in October. Ooh, thank you so much, Sydney. It was really cool listening to your thoughts about that. I'm going to plug and shout out all three of us. Ah. Caroline on the main topic is Caroline the Bug. Tom on the question is tom lum person or tom lumperson if you prefer <laughs> on all platforms and i am awkwardly dr big science energy on tiktok and ella hubbard on twitter i'm gonna jump in and thank maximum fun for having us on their network also come and join us on our discord server you can find Woo! it at let's learn everything pod.com all of the links to all of our socials are over there for now so this episode, we learned about the explosive history of plastics. <laughs> and we're very glad hey. that they don't catch on fire so often anymore. We learned that 
Who knows who's got perfect pitch and who doesn't? But there's a lot to learn. There's a lot there's to so learn. There's so much to learn. And hopefully we find out more in the future. And we also learned that generations are kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah. One researcher from London, one doc- doctor from London said that I heard. I heard that somewhere. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and join us next episode where we will learn about Everything. Let's Learn Everything is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunn and Caroline Roper with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn. Uh, to demonstrate, I'm going to play something really quick. Fuck. Oh, that was good. Good recording. Thanks. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.